Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's S-E-E, changehappen.co.uk. You'll be able to catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 53, with the title, Domestic Abuse Must Not Be Tolerated. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to be joined by Andrew Payne. Andrew describes himself as someone who talks about domestic abuse and gender equality. When I asked Andrew to describe his superpower, he said, I am an open book and happy to talk about anything. Hello, Andrew. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to this. Are you keeping well? I am keeping well, Andrew. Thank you so much for giving up your time. No, so, Andrew, no tell me, why are you so passionate about domestic abuse and why shouldn't it be tolerated? Well, um, in a former marriage, I was the long-term victim of domestic abuse. Um, I was married to my now ex-wife for nine, nine ten years. Um, and I have daughters and sons. And so I'm a, a passionate uh, campaigner around domestic abuse and around taking a, a non-gendered approach towards domestic abuse. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of some of the statistics, but a lot of the language around domestic abuse at the moment is that the overwhelming majority of victims of domestic abuse are women and the overwhelming majority of perpetrators of domestic abuse are men. But statistically, it just doesn't stack up. R- roughly speaking, with the statistics that we currently have, a third of victims of domestic abuse are, in fact, men, which is not the overwhelming minority. It's the, the lesser proportion, for sure. Um, but of those third... The, the vast majority uh, of male victims of domestic abuse, uh, it's been perpetrated by females. It doesn't come from the LGBT communities. Roughly 10% of male victims of domestic abuse with, with uh, research carried out by Mankind Initiative. And so I'm passionate because having been through it, having seen how difficult it is, how, how difficult as a guy I felt to sort of be honest about it and about what was going on. Um, I want to talk about domestic abuse. I want to create more awareness um, and of course, uh, often we think of domestic abuse as a, well, it's either going to be uh, man on woman, woman on man, man on man or woman on woman. But I mean, I work uh, with a charity where we support families in crisis where the perpetrators are the children uh, and can be as young as five or six and very violent towards their parents. And you, that, it's something that's not talked about. But if I refer back to the t- statistics, sorry, of a, a third of victims are men, two thirds are women, some of those statistics will be made up by a woman and a man actually in a loving relationship together, but they're being abused by their child. And it may be that that has has been reported to the police. And the police, uh, if you look at some of their their own sort of reporting and awareness, it is a rapidly growing phenomenon, this phenomenon of parents abused by children. So I want to talk about domestic abuse. I want to create more awareness. And I'm passionate about shining the spotlight on all faces of domestic abuse so that all victims of domestic abuse have support and can talk openly and freely about their experiences. That's really interesting because I was watching a TV program last night around uh, two parents who had autistic children, uh, Paddy McGuinness. 
And it came up in there where children, autistic children, can often vent frustration and anger against their parents. It was the first time it really occurred to me that a young child could lose control to the point where they could inflict, you know, and they were talking about having claw marks down their arms and things. Yeah, yeah. It's so not that, uncommon. That really surprised me. Yeah. Well, one of the cases that uh, the charity that I work with that, that they supported was a child as young as I think it was seven or eight that tried to push mum onto the railway tracks and kill her. Um, you know, and that that's what you're up against. I mean, even in my close uh, circle of friends, uh, I know of a single mum who was knocked around quite a bit by her teenage daughters who really did rule the roost. There was no man on the scene. There's no boys. There's no partner. Uh, but, you know, as a parent, you feel like a failed parent uh, unless your child has some kind of uh, additional needs. Uh, you you feel like a failed parent and and talking about it feels quite shameful. And so I think we need to open up more space for more of these faces of domestic abuse. Of course, we need to protect female victims of domestic abuse. Some, some of my uh, dear female friends have been through it themselves. Um, I have sisters, I have daughters, and I'm blissfully remarried. Um, so we shouldn't take the spotlight away from women, but we do need to support men as well. And for example, uh, the new domestic abuse bill that got royal assent this year, um, the organisations that came to give testimony to to try and shape that domestic abuse bill, all of them, without exception, were women's organisations, even though a third of victims are men. And some of the leading male organisations like Mankind Initiative applied and applied to be able to come along and, and asked and asked and were completely ignored from the process. And so th that's where we need to change. We, Of course, we need a strategy that tackles violence against girls and women, but we also need an official strategy that tackles violence against men and boys as well, if we're serious about equality. I'm I'm completely taken back by the, the stat of a third of victims are, are men. As you say, some of those could include child or, or couple abuse with children, etc. But that's a, a massively high number. Yeah. That it's I a massively high number. And that number doesn't take into account the underreporting among men because of all the mm. whole thing around, you know, manning up, man flu, man eyes, who wears the trousers, have you got your kitchen pass if you're going out? You know, I, I play football and you know that's the kind of banter in the locker room all the time. And um there is a stigma for men of reporting. Will I be believed? Um, I feel so weak and stupid um, to, to share that this, this has been happening. And so some men's organisations, not Mankind Initiative necessarily, but some men's, probably more men's rights organisations, would actually argue that there is a higher prevalence of women uh, committing domestic abuse against men than there is the other way around. Now, I wouldn't go that far in my own beliefs because I don't think the data yet supports that. It may or may not be true. But what we do know is that a third are men. And we do know that there is a, a, a lot of under-reporting. Um, and the thing that struck me, I did, um, and this isn't a plug for my TEDx talk, but I did a TEDx talk on domestic abuse, on my experiences and on some, some of these wider issues. And what I wasn't prepared for after that talk went live was the sheer number of women who messaged me sort of through LinkedIn, Facebook, email, and, and the rest of it, saying you know, it happened to my brother, it happened to my son, it happened to my uncle. He didn't talk about it, but was left in a really bad way. Thanks for doing the talk. And so you start to realise, actually, there's a lot of women who have had enough, a lot of women with loved ones who are men who have been abused, but they, they don't have a voice. 
and they feel that they can speak up. And my hope, you know, in terms of feeling optimistic, is that with all the focus now on well-being or on mental health, my hope is that more and more men do speak out. They don't feel ashamed. And I, and I do think there's slow progress. There is slow change. But I also think that some of the larger organisations um, that rely on funding, it is in their interests to maintain a very gendered narrative on the debate of domestic abuse, that the, the, the vast majority of victims are absolutely women and the vast majority of perpetrators are men. There are some powerful organisations where they have vested interests to maintain that narrative. And so I think change will be slow, but but it is definitely happening. Yeah, it's also the, 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 sort of the human bias. Men are strong, women are weak. Yeah. Even with fourth-wave feminism, there's still... Yeah. And that's that's why men are probably underreporting because they don't want to be seen as weak or emasculated or, as you say, have the, have the stigma. And there was a yeah. there's a storyline on the BBC TV Casualty recently. I believe it was Casualty, where one of the nurses was who was male was being the victim of abuse uh, by one of. Um, their supporters who also happen to be their, their their partner girlfriend, so yeah, and I I saw a different side to that as well about how that can occur. So it's not always just pure abuse; physical is also coercive control. Yeah, and and this goes on in all relationships. I'm not saying this is particularly men or particularly women. This is people suffer physical and mental. Yeah, you know, the abuse, no matter if it's physical or mental, is still as intolerable and still as dangerous. Yeah. A mental no, question. Yeah, yes. you're absolutely right. To, to be, and in fact, the I mentioned the new domestic abuse bill. So there's a new definition of domestic abuse, a new statutory uh, official definition that does include coercive control, economic abuse, uh, that, that recognises that domestic abuse isn't just physical violence. And, uh, you know, after my TEDx talk came out, actually, one of the people that contacted me was a guy and, and I'd known him years before quite well. We sort of lost contact. And he messaged me out of the blue to say, oh, you know, I've seen your TEDx talk. You know, he's one of these Facebook friends who, like, he's a friend, but, like, I, I don't, don't really have a lot of contact. But he, um, he, revealed, he shared with me that he'd been brought to the brink of suicide by the sheer campaign of emotional abuse that his former female partner had waged on him. Now, to put things into perspective, this guy is six foot five. He's built like a tank. He's a lawyer with his own legal practice. He's not he's not a fool. He speaks several languages fluently. And his partner at the time, who I'd met several times, she was quite quiet. I didn't particularly get to know her, but she had a walking stick. She was partially sighted. You know, if you put them together in the street, you would not think, oh, well, there's a victim and a perpetrator here. Uh, he's the victim. She's the perpetrator. You just wouldn't think that. But the, the point with that, as well as the whole kind of gender bias thing, the whole point with that is really backing what you've said is that the emotional side of domestic abuse is extremely serious for men and for women. And I think that's why it's now recognized within the official uh, definition. And it's a good thing because it, the, you know, the, the gaslighting, uh, do, do you know what gaslighting is, by the way, just before I, uh, I, got, I think I've got a good idea, but no, please do explain it for anybody who, who's listening. I'll try. Do you know what? I'll explain it, and then I'll give you a working, real-life example from uh, my former relationship, so you can kind of see how this plays itself out. Um, so, gaslighting is where the the abuser will will 
cause the victim to doubt their own judgment, their own sanity. You think you're going crazy. The abuser is running rings around you emotionally. Um, so an example of how this works, a really silly example. So my ex-wife uh, was very sort of flamboyant and, and loved to entertain. And we were living in the south of France at the time as we, we were living there for, for some years. And she had a load of our friends around. She was entertaining, holding forth as she always did at the dinner. There's probably about 10 or a dozen of us around the table. I can't remember exactly how many. But she was telling some great stories. She was a good storyteller. And she told this story of where she was doing a teacher training course, working in a school uh, in a deprived part of the UK, uh, where 95% of people that live in that area are drug, ad drug addicts. And when she said this absurd statistic, because there's nowhere in the world where 95% of uh, its residents are drug addicts, she kind of lost the interest of people around the table. You could see people thinking, what a load of rubbish. And it was a bit one of those kind of excruciating moments where as her husband, I'm like, oh, she's come and done it again. You know, she always does. It. Anyway, so later when they'd gone, I plucked up the courage. I didn't usually pluck up the courage, I have to say. But on this particular occasion, I, I don't know why I had. Maybe I just was feeling particularly... Uh, I, I, I have no idea how I put the code, but I had the word that I sort of said, look, look, you know, you tell great stories. It was great. You had everyone following you. But like, that statistic is, is just so improbable. And, and I felt like you lost people around the table. Now, she went mad. I, at that point, I wasn't physically attacked uh, on, on that incident. But the thing that she did, and this is why it, uh, this is gaslighting. Absolutely. She came back at me and say, you know, you always do this, Andrew. You know, I see this with the, the kids. You always spoil their fun. You take everything so seriously. You won't let just let them play. You're so pedantic. And so do you know what I thought? Coming away from that conversation, I didn't think, do you know what? You know, I've, I'm really going to need to repeat this conversation because she's embarrassing herself when she comes out with it, when she makes these statistics up. I came away from that conversation thinking, I need to go back to counselling. And one of the things I'm going to bring up with my counsellors, I am, I've become so pedantic, you know, I've lost the little kid in me. That is gaslighting. That That is how gaslighting works. And, you know, it's very, it's a, a, a very common feature of abusive relationships, whether the abusive relationship is a home-based abusive relationship or whether it's at work. That's how gaslighters work. Is it, does it stem from a personality disorder, narcissism, uh psycho psychopathy or something or is it or is it just Ooh, not relating something yeah i mean so with my ex-wife um it's hard to know what the real issue was or is because uh the the lying is just in depth it's just you know you if she said she went to sainsbury's now i'd be thinking you didn't you went to tesco's you know it, about everything and so there were in the family courts when we were battled for years in the family courts after the relationship breakdown. She's definitely had uh, some diagnosis around personality disorder, but it's not clear. And, and it's hard. It's never going to be that clear. But sort of from some of the campaigning work I do and sort of talking with uh, male victims and female victims, I think some of the words you mentioned, personality disorder, narcissism, these are the typical sort of traits and words that crop up when we look at uh, abusive people. Um, but, it's, you know, my ex-wife would admit that she had some anger issues, but to take that to the point where she would admit she had a personality disorder and is a compulsive liar, you know, no one's going to admit to that, really. Um, 
But yeah, it's, it's, it's a lack of empathy and compassion, isn't it? It's a, it's a disconnect between in, intent and impact. It's, there's no compassion there. There's no understanding. It, it's it's that kind of self centered, yeah, not wanting yourself to to look bad, feel bad. It's never your problem. It's always someone else's. So I, I guess that's what I, I was hearing what you were saying. Yeah, I think the other thing to re- to remember to sort of remember as well, I certainly pull out when I talk about domestic abuse is. Often we can imagine in our heads, um, you know, an abusive home. So the perpetrator is obviously violent and aggressive and, you know, this gaslighting. Yeah, we can all imagine that. But we also have to remember that a lot of abusers, um, they will change tactics from day to day to keep people on their toes. So my ex-wife, there is a condition. Did she have it or not? I don't really know. There's a condition called Munchausen's where... She, she was absolutely obsessed with all these illnesses and conditions she had. So on the one day, she'd be bullying and shouting and screaming and the kids would be scared and I'd be scared. The next day, everyone's worried about her because she's in bed. She's not getting up. Um, she's seriously unwell. She used to talk about heart attacks that she'd had, uh, a brain tumor the size of an orange, bronchitis, hepatitis C, you name it. She, she had every allergy known to man or beast. And so abusers are also very good at switching the tactics so so then everyone's racing around bringing the meals worried about them and then suddenly they're out of bed and they're raging and ranting and shouting so that that's it's like a roller coaster of emotion you never quite know what you're going to get and and when you're on the receiving end of domestic abuse you become quite obsessive yourself so i became a chronic worrier an obsessive planner so thinking at the start of every day what are the possible triggers that might set her off? And how do I stop those triggers being pulled? So I, I was a compulsive liar. Myself. I used to lie all the time. I remember uh, she was at work. She was out of the house or wherever she was. We were in France at the time. And I remember washing up and breaking like her favorite wine glass. It had some sentimental value. I think a friend had given it to her. You know, you know when you wash up and the stem just comes off in your hand and you're like, oh, that wasn't meant to happen. Um, and I remember like just this fear sort of just going and like feeling sick to my guts and so what I did was she was out at the time I was like well what am I going to do how 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 am I going to conceal the evidence so I squirreled it away into the neighbor's recycling bin breathed a sigh of relief the next day when the recycling truck came and took it away and then when she was like have you seen that wine glass I was like no 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 I haven't so in order to protect the peace in order to keep things as stable as you, you're constantly overthinking, over planning, and you'll do whatever you have to to protect the peace. You know, even down to uh, losing your own integrity within that, which which I definitely had. Um, and towards the end, I, I really, I, I probably lied as much as she did in order to try and keep things peaceful. As you're talking, and I'm, I'm just thinking back to a, a recent time in my history where. Four or five years ago, I, I gender transitioned, which is obviously not an easy thing to do in, in, a, in a family relationship. It's no. not every family succeeds. And I knew at the time that I was causing the pain. So I, I was the pain instigator or the, the change instigator for my daughter, my son, my wife, my family and friends. And so kind of I accepted the fact that I I was the the perpetrator of blame, if you like, the perpetrator who who caused this pain on everybody else. And I almost felt like I had to 
well, I just feel like I had to absorb whatever was coming back because that was that was because it was my fault. And there wasn't through gaslighting. I just owned it, if you like. Yeah. And I fully respected that I caused that pain. But I, I soon realized that I used to describe it as this this red line that used to appear behind me. So I, I crossed the red line without even realizing, one, that the red line existed, and two, that it suddenly I crossed it without even knowing it was there. And what was fine one day was not fine the next day. So there's a lot of emotional um, disruption in the family unit. And I, as I say, I, I wouldn't go as far to say there was domestic abuse, but there was definitely it was definitely really difficult for me to absorb this pain. And the technique I learned eventually was to recognize what was going on. I recognized that these outbursts, these in, these initiations, these these anxiety outbursts, whatever it was, was, the red line was going to appear behind me again and again and again. And what was good one day was bad the next. I learned just to not 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 walk away, but just disengage and go, okay, all right, I'll, I can't fix that. It is what it is. And I, I realized that that helped me. It didn't diffuse the situation because all it did was pour, pour more anger on the fire because there was always this, 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 this prod to find out where the next weak spot is. And if you yeah. keep pushing hard enough, you'll yeah. find the next spot. So I learned to close down all those spots over the course of a couple of years. And it's made me a, be able to react to those kind of situations differently now because I, I recognize them coming. And I know there's, I know you can't argue out of it. I know you can't negotiate. I know there's no fix. The only fix is, 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 is diffusing or walking away, letting it burn out and then coming back later and going, are we, are we, are we done yet? They go, no, okay. All right. Back later. And eventually the anxiety or the trigger in the other people just, just just dissolves. And it, and then everything's back to normal again. It's like nothing ever happened. So I've, I've learned that by my my active involvement in trying to solve the problem at the time, just poured more petrol on the fire. It was just yeah. making it worse and worse and worse. So I've definitely dis- discovered my mechanism for withdrawing from those situations. And I feel much more comfortable in my own self now, knowing I can handle those situations when they occur, not just in my family unit, but in other units as well, You know, other situations where... I know that there's there's battles you can win and battles you can't win. Conversations you have to have and conversations that are pointless to have, and it, it's it's definitely kept, helped me create that 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 protective barrier that I yeah. now understand. Whereas yeah. before I didn't understand what was happening to me, and I think that's what you're trying to describe here is that you become the victim because you don't understand it. You, you think I must be able to fix this. Yeah, I think that's true. I think. I think it's very hard trying to raise children where with with an abusive partner because you you just want to protect the kids um and you 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 do blame yourself you think because you you're the victim of gaslighting as well so you see that everything's your fault so you're just constantly trying to improve yourself uh make yourself a better person and I think you know people sometimes say well how, how does someone fall into that you know were you con? Did you fall in love? And then it was too late. And, and I think you, you know, there, there are people that con their victims. They they make them fall in love with them, and then they they turn into someone else. But my ex-wife was as she always was from the start. 
But my, my and the thing that I'm getting to with this is that I was just a nice guy. I wanted to help her, um, and I sort of got sucked into this. You know, I, she she talked and talked about this abusive childhood that she'd had, how she'd overcome it. Uh, and I was like, wow, this is, she's amazing. But she's obviously still has issues with that. And I wanted to help her. And before long, I was just embroiled in this relationship. But the issue for me was I didn't have sort of a clear sense of boundaries. When, when I first met her, if you just said to me, well, what's a boundary? I'd have been like, I don't know. We're, like, I don't know. We're, I, I wouldn't ever have thought about life that deeply. And now, I mean, I do do work as part of my leadership work on boundaries with people. And um, I see that you the, there's three types of boundaries, and this really helped me. Just referring to your technique of the red line, which I like, I like that. Although I often think with the red line, I just imagine pub, but maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a good thing. Red like, line rather than lion. Red line. Yeah. L i n e. Yes. It's oh, a red line. No, okay, okay. Red iron. I thought you were saying red lion. Line. And I was thinking red line. L i n e. So it's oh, like, okay, a, okay, okay. Red line. It's, it's, it's this invisible wiggly red line that used to appear behind oh, okay. me okay like, realizing it yeah i was imagining <laughs> an angry sort of red lion but then it kind of reminded no. me of a red line yeah so the um and the three boundaries for me so people often think of boundaries as one thing you know you ask someone personal boundaries if you have to sort of quantify that they'll say oh well it's like isn't it like a brick wall that you put around yourself to stop yourself being taken advantage of but i think of uh boundaries and i encourage others now i just kind of made it up for myself coming out of this abusive relationship. And as a kind of way of thinking about boundaries, other people seem to find it quite helpful too. And I was like, well, there's three types of boundaries, actually, that we need to start thinking about. And at the beginning of the day, when you're planning your day, you know, what are the conversations you're going to have? Who are you going to interact with? What are the moral dilemmas you might face? And therefore, your three types of boundaries. One is you've got a line in the sand. If you imagine a line in the sand you could just walk up to that line and step over it like and the tide will wash it away the next day so your line in the sand boundaries are where you've got a desired outcome on something but if you don't get your own way on it you wouldn't lose too much sleep about it. it's fine you roll you'd happily roll over even though you do have a preference on that thing you've then got your um, flexible fencing boundaries where this time there's a bit more a flexible fence is dug in it, it's harder to climb over a flexible fence, although it is possible. You can move flexible fences. And these are where you've got a desired outcome or a preference on something. And now the outcome matters more to you than the line in the sand boundaries. There's some room for flex, but not complete room for flex. And then the third type of boundary is your castle walls. No budging. Uh, you know, they, they have deep foundations and there's no negotiation or compromise. And I felt coming out of my relationship... I want a suite of boundaries. Like, you know, it's important that I roll over on some things that I maintain. I want to preserve my easygoing nature, but I need to toughen up on some things and I need to know where I'm going to toughen up on. I need to know with the flexible fencing wall, I need to know how far I compromise. Otherwise, I'll just get pushed into compromising too far. Um, and so I started to think about boundaries as these three things and start really trying to think of my day ahead and then wherever i stood whichever boundary i might choose on a dilemma or, or an issue well the next question is well there are consequences to that boundary so am i okay with them because obviously if you go for a line in the sand boundary you might create expectations that, that you may later regret if you go for a flexible fencing boundary and you haven't thought through where you'll compromise you may compromise too far and if you go for a castle wall boundary then you have to be prepared for war 
and and can you cope with that? And do you have the resources at the moment to to handle that? Um, and so that helped me coming out of my relationship to say I still I don't want to be a bitter man. I, I want to meet uh, another woman. I want to settle down, um, but I know that I need to toughen up. And, and that's just the boundary model that I used. Um, but I like thinking about your red line, your red line yeah. now behind you. Yeah. Well, it appears behind you. You don't even know it exists. Then it appears behind you. So you crossed it without having any control over it. And yeah. I, I used to use a, I used to have my own metaphor around when I was transitioning. And I, I, I wrote a blog article called Finding My Safari Park. So okay. what I, for me, there were these the three metaphors or the three boundaries, if you want. One was, living in a cage in a zoo, basically being told what to do, no control over my life, just just, yeah. just being fed and, and marching, walking around, around circles and let out when, when someone else was. The safari park was big. It was massive. I felt kind of wild. I could roam. It had fences that I probably never found. You know, I, I, knew, I knew there were fences, but I, and I could keep within the fence. Then the third element was the Serengeti. So I was roaming free. I was living my own life. I was just doing whatever I wanted to do without any any constraint and no rules. So I didn't want the Serengeti. I wanted to be married. I wanted to have a family. I wanted to have children. I understood there had to be boundaries for everybody, not just me, but other people yeah. in the relationship. So I didn't want to roam wild. But I didn't want to be kept in a cage and let out when it suited other people, living living my life by somebody else's rules. That was my cage. So what I wanted to do was, was have a safari park where I felt that I could live my life as I needed to, respecting the rules of the game, respecting you know there's uh, certain certain parameters you have to live by in a family unit, but hopefully never get into the fence where the fence became the problem. So I had plenty of room to roam. So that that's how I used it. Was my my nirvana was trying to find my safari park where I could yeah. live my life as me, understand the rules and the parameters. And not be told how to live and put in a cage. So that that was that was, that was that. my metaphors, if you like. Yeah, I love those metaphors. Really, really like those metaphors. Mm. I've got three boys under nine now, and they just they just love anything that's animals or prehistoric, uh, safari. Yeah, but no, I love that. Really, really helpful metaphors, actually. Yeah, and I did. <laughs> During that process, I said, no, I, "What I don't want you to do is is come and catch me one day and, and stick me back in the cage because I you think I've transgressed it." You know, the safari park is the safari park. There's no there's no kind of lock me in a cage for a night because you don't like it. So yeah, it was it was a, a metaphor that worked you, for me. You raised something else as as a you know we hear some of the whole thing. We're going off topic, I suppose, but. Um, some of the thing around the vaccine, uh, you know, and the, the COVID deniers, and I hear a lot of stuff. It's my personal choice. I think there's an expectation that we should be able to live in the Serengeti and just live this this life. But actually, we're a society that there has to be some rules. And, and I think a lot of people use this, it's my choice, as an excuse. And what they mean to say is, I want to live selfishly, and I don't care about the impact of, of my life on other people. And there has to be a middle ground, like you say, a safari park where we have room to be ourselves, but where there are rules and boundaries and where actually in, in finding ourselves, we, we are respectful of, of others in society. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's just the one of my uh, little bugbears. Yeah. The other thing about Serengeti is you can roam free. 
But if you're a zebra, you, you can also get eaten yeah. and die. Yeah. <laughs> but the idea of the safari part, you're, you're not actually worried about the basic survival. You know, you, that, yeah. you kind of got your bottom two layers of the Maslow pyramid sort yeah. of fairly well sorted. So that was the other metaphor with, with the Serengeti is that you, you, you could die. So when you talk about the anti-vaxxers and, and living your life, yeah, go and live in the Serengeti. But the risk is you're kind of on your own. You're kind yeah. of outside yeah. the, the social norms. And if you want to live in the social norms, then somehow you've got to kind of live within the bounds of Safari Park and obey the rules. Otherwise, it, it doesn't work for everybody. You know, if you personally yeah. put a lion in, in the zebra cage, the lion's got COVID and the zebras haven't been vaccinated, then you got you got a struggle there, haven't you? That, that's, where, that's where it all breaks down. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Um. Yeah, no, but yeah, you, you, I, 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 I love your your line in the sand one, and I talk about strong opinions weekly held, which is for you. You can have your view, you can have your know what you stand for, but you don't carve it in stone. You, you etch your views, your opinions in sand, and as you say, you can wipe them out, you can move them tomorrow. It's an it's another tide, it's another line, yeah. uh, and I think that's really really important to be able to have that flexibility of opinion, isn't it? Yeah, and I think I mean with my kids. Um, I mean, I'm I'm very passionate about boundaries, and I think because I really didn't know what my boundaries were, I didn't really give it any thought as a kid. Um, you know, I want my boys ideally to have have a better sense of that as they're growing up. Um, and so, you you know, I use the the visuals of a line in the sand, flexible fencing, castle walls. But for for, for younger children, uh, so my, my middle one is uh, five. When, when they're play fighting, which they do all the time, and when they're not play fighting, they're just squabbling, being a pain, which they are quite a bit, they, um, getting them to understand the words stop and enough, and it, it's okay to say stop and enough. And actually, when somebody says stop and enough, then that should be respected. You respect other people's stop and enough. And just at a very basic point, if you can start to get your head around, well, what is my stop? What is my enough? It's okay to say it. And it's okay to stand by that and, and make difficult decisions. And you're definitely halfway there. And using children's example, my teenage daughter, uh, now she's 17, but when she was 14, she started dating this guy who everybody, she goes to a girl's school. Everyone was wanting to date him. Uh, he was the super cool kid, skateboarder, uh, good looking, all that kind of stuff. Um, and she was so chuffed in terms of street kudos to have this boyfriend but he started like belittling her skills and being quite controlling about who she was seeing what she was wearing so she dumped him just dumped him got rid um and she was really sad she was talking to me afterwards i I thought she was going to think about it but she just got rid and um she was saying well you know i didn't want to dump him but I, i can't put up with that i'm not going to put up with that and i think the point of that and the reason i share that is you know boundaries it's not a fluffy concept you know, you can have your flexible fences, your castle walls, your line in the sand. You can have a sense of stop and enough. And that all sounds quite nice in theory. But practically, you're going to have to make some tough decisions. Therefore, those boundaries, if you're going to live by them, will cause you to make decisions where your heart is saying, no, please, no. But they are your boundaries. Your, your boundaries are your lighthouse, your red flags. no. You know, it, it is correct. I, I let go of this thing or or this person, and so boundaries are not. It's not an easy concept to no stop and enough, and then to act on your stop and enough. Um, but I, you know, I admire my daughter, fourteen, being able to do that. 
And, and that's where we, as we start thinking about boundaries as, as, as adults and in the workplace and at home, you know, that's where we have to start thinking about boundaries and, and saying, well, there are tough consequences, whichever boundary I choose. And if I don't choose any boundaries, then the consequences get bigger and bigger, actually. So it's better to have some tough consequences on defined boundaries than no boundaries at all. And then everything just gets all is, is allowed to just meander. That That's one of the big challenges with things like grooming and escalation, isn't it? Where if you don't, if stopping enough isn't respected, then it's hard to pull it back because you, what, what you're trying to say stop for, if it's been ignored at the basic level, there's no there's no barrier to it growing and growing and growing. And all of a sudden your boundary, instead of being a manageable boundary, so it becomes an immanageable yeah. and you're, you're hooked into the whole event then. You, you no longer know where stopping enough is. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's yes. I mean, fully, fully agree. But I think if if we can raise a generation of young people that are used to thinking about what their stop and enough might look like, and that actually it's important to respect other people's stop and enough, then I think we stand a better chance of kids spotting the signs earlier and maybe communicating that not all is well. Um, I don't think it fully protects because I think you're right. These things can uh, they can gradually escalate and then your boundaries sort of change and you don't even see them changing and they've changed. And suddenly you're accepting things you'd never have thought you would accept five years ago. That happens. But I think, you know, your boundaries will always change. And for me, uh, one of the lessons I've learned from sort of going through domestic abuse is that I need to be on top of my boundaries. I need to think about them and not lose touch with them. Uh, as as I move forward in life, and to be constantly questioning those boundaries, are they appropriate? Do I step back? Do you know w- w- what are they saying to me? Yeah, I, I, as you're talking now, I'm just thinking that it's such a powerful and simple thing to educate children on. Is stopping enough? Educating boys around what that means when they hear it. Educating girls and other people that when they they feel they want to say it, they say it. In, in a, a very authoritative, unequivocal way. So there's no misunderstandings. And and learning that stopping enough can evolve. It, 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 what was okay one minute can suddenly hit a red line and not be okay the next minute. And, yeah. and that's okay as well. And I think that's, that's a really powerful educational lesson when we're talking about trying to sort out violence against, well, let's say violence against all people. Yeah. And rape against people and coercive control, anything. It's it's a really important lesson, and and maybe signs of how to spot this, how to how to spot the signs of this process or this escalation or this this gaslighting occurring, because we don't learn it often until we become the victim. It's not until with hindsight you see it. It's, yeah. How do we teach the foresight? How can we stop intelligent people falling into this abuse? Yeah, I mean, I when I was at school, and it's going back, I'm 47 now, so it's going back an awful long time. I seem to recall there was some class lessons on, on relationships, but they were very wishy-washy. There was nothing, you know, and I think today we, we are knowing what we know. We, we owe it to our, our young people to, to do more, to do better, to, to ensure that, when we when you know there there is stuff on relationships that they know 
what gaslighting is, what it looks like, that they speak to survivors of domestic abuse, women and, and men, so they can see it's both genders and it's okay. It's just not it's not just something that happens to girls that, that as a guy, if you're going through it, you can talk about it. it you know, and, and I do think, you know, when I when I look at some of the stuff that my kids come back with, I do think schools are doing all they can within COVID restrictions and all the budgetary restrictions that they have. Um, but yeah, we, we have to do more, I think, to, to create this sense of boundaries, um, mental health, um, self, all those things, we, we, you know, we, we can always do more. But I've got a lot of faith that we're in a better place today than we were 30 years ago. And uh, hopefully we, we can keep keep moving forward as well. Mm. So how, how do we get men or male identifying individuals to be in the room to understand the conversations that women are having around violence against women and girls? And then how do we get women or female identifying people to want to get into the room to listening to men and their own abuse? Because at the moment there's, I think you said right at the beginning, there's polarised camps it's very often the narrative is yeah. controlled by the victim and the people who who want to say something. But how do we have the centrist ground where we sit down and talk about it? Because it's very difficult to get men into the room in DNI conversations, in well-being conversations. It's very easy to find women and minorities, not so easy to find men. How, how do we how do we get people into the room to have these conversations? It you know it's it's difficult. It and it's it is uh, the world. What I've realised since I sort of do. So, I mean, it's not my, uh, I, don't, I don't get paid to campaign. It's just something that I, I'm passionate about. So I do campaigning. But the thing that I've realized is you know, domestic abuse, it, it is quite a divisive field. Um, uh, some of the other issues that, that are debated, like parental alienation, when, when a loving parent is squeezed out of a child's life um, by an abusive parent, uh, very, very common in abusive relationships. Once a relationship breaks down, if there are kids, the abuser will use the kids in a new game of psychological warfare. But all the conversation around parental alienation uh, is very gendered, very divisive. Um, and it, it's the, the only thing we can do to try and create centrist ground is to challenge uh, bias, is to challenge inequality gently and, and respectfully um, and to keep speaking up. So, you know, on some of the LinkedIn posts where I, I feel they're heavily gendered and quite divisive, I will sometimes make a polite comment. I won't, I won't go in all guns blazing like an angry, you know, I, I don't want to be an angry man. But um, the, the kickback from that is usually quite strong because, of course, the, the other thing is where, um, where you know, a, a lot of um, women and men working in the domestic abuse field, they have suffered. They, they have lived experience. So they carry pain. And, and it's a painful subject. The same with parental alienation. A lot of the people are campaigning that it's, you know, it need, we need to tackle it. There's then the, uh, a view from uh, groups like Women's Aid where parental alienation is a male patriarchal construct used to uh, punish women. So, you know, you've got this abusive man. Uh, he shouldn't have access to the kids. Um, he waves his parental alienation card in court. And now mum is under huge pressure and children are being forced into contact with abusive dads. Now, of course, there will be examples where that does happen, um, just as there are examples that parental alienation, where the loving parent is squeezed out the child's life. But somehow we have to find a way to bring those camps together and say, look, men and women 
both abused. Men and women both suffer. This isn't a competition here, but how do we have true equality? How do we support each other? How do we come together as genders? And it's a, you know, it pains me. It really does the, the division in those fields. We, we should be working together. We should be sharing resource and knowledge and we're not. Yeah, it reminds me about the, uh, the rhetoric around Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And yeah. being able to talk about other people who have challenges. But it's about re- retaining the focus on the original post, if you like, or the original point, is that in this particular moment we are talking about black lives. And by, by trying to recenter it on something else, it's, just, it's, it's sort of kind of taking the spotlight away from the original point. So it's, it's not about trying to take over or usurp the, the the problem with violence against women and girls, et cetera, et cetera. What it's doing is it's recognizing that that has a validity and then having another conversation around uh, the violence against men and boys. And then somehow we've got to try and create a middle ground where we say, actually, yes, we've got focus on violence against women and girls. Yes, we've got focus around men and boys. We've also got a center ground where we can, we can have both conversations and address it together. Yeah. But the, the challenge is, I think what you're facing there is where an attempt to take the spotlight off of the point is being met with a, a kind of a, an all lives matter type response where it's recentering the problem on something else other than what they were talking about, which is yeah, always going to be a I, challenge for passionate people. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. I think my concern about not challenging some of the very gendered narrative in within the field of domestic abuse. So for example, this happened in Australia so I'm not saying that every school is doing this, but it's just an example, a one-off example. There's a school in Australia, it came to the, into the news, um, where the boys aged sort of seven to ten had had to stand up in assembly as a gesture to apologise to the girls for all the oppression that they've faced over the years. And my concern in, in this kind of vilification of, of men, of boys, a bit like you know, the boys will be boys post that commented on the, the beginning of this podcast uh, and, and then boys will be held accountable you know we wonder why uh, three quarters of suicide victims are in fact men um, of the six thousand or so a year something like four and a half thousand I think are men so the rough figures but there is a vilification of men and boys if if a mother kills her children um what that the press will do with that as a story is they'll highlight her mental health issues. Um, if a father kills his children, he will be branded as a monster throughout. So we 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 need some consistency. We 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 need to be encouraging girls and boys to support each other where boys aren't being sort of vilified and and called. You know where, where there is equal focus on boys and girls treating each other well and, and with respect and celebrating each other's differences. And, and, and there's equal responsibility on boys to call out boys and girls to call out girls as well. And so that's kind of what I'm passionate about in campaigning and in talking about some of my experiences. That That's the point. That That's why I did a TEDx tour. That, that's why, you know, that my it's not my business. It will never be my business. It's that I have daughters and sons and and I, and I I feel that they're growing up into quite a divisive world in terms of gender and, and we need to work better together. But it doesn't start if we vilify our boys, we'll just create an angry and disaffected generation of young men. Yeah, and we can also already see the rise of that. I think the biggest growth in disaffected 
people at the moment is young white men in um, less affluent circumstances, and they're being disenfranchised because there's no support for them. There's support yeah. for minority communities, but not the uh, the disenfranchised young white man. And we've got to be careful. I always say this, we've got to be careful of society. We don't create inclusion by leaving people behind. What we end up doing is we, we end up amplifying certain people and not not keeping making sure that everybody is with us at this point. And we end up sort of fractioning people. And we see it in the in the inclusion and belonging space, the DNI space, where we are leaving behind white men. And yeah. there's a lot of disenfranchisation there where they think they, they shut off the conversations where and say, This isn't for me. What what, what value can I contribute? Because if I do try and contribute, I'll get shut down. But it's a, it's important to let everybody sit around the table and have conversations, if not to speak, but to listen and yeah. to be involved. Yeah. Uh, and that's the big challenge. You can't change the world by sitting in an echo chamber. Yeah. At some point, you have to let the people with the power and the privilege into the room to, to invoke the change. But you have to invite them in the, in the way they want to be there and listen and contribute. If you're just going to invite them in to shout at them, they won't come in. They, they sit, they'll just lock the, lock the door and barricade themselves in and say, when you've sorted it out, let me know. But in the meantime, you're too angry for me. And that's that's the reality. And I think we've got to find a way of engaging in a non-threatening, which I appreciate for some people, that means that change will happen too slowly. And that's the other thing, is, is trying to get the pace of change to a point where we can all recognise that something's occurring and yeah. we actually see progress. Yeah. And that's that's the other challenge I see. Yeah. So you said you said just now that this is not, this is not your your main business, you know. You, you don't spend all your time talking about. It. What's your What's the other side of what you do? Yeah, so I do. Um, I talk around uh, when I say leadership. I mean, so particularly if I look at this year, um, I do um, sort of standalone um, keynote talks and training sessions, particularly on burnout, critical decision making, uh, resilience. Um, I've got another one on how to delegate so the job gets done on time to the standard that you want because we all know we should delegate. But leaders are often nervous of delegating because they fear that the handover will take them forever. And then the people they handed the task to will nag them incessantly and won't do the job properly anyway. And so lo- looking around techniques, so because there's not actually a lot of training on delegation, yeah, it should be an absolute, if you look at specific coaching. So um, it, it's leadership, I suppose if you were going to put it in a box, you might say it's productivity related. Um I do talk around sort of procrastination and, and, and time and efficiency, but the, the talks that are most popular at the moment are my talks around burnout, resilience and critical decision making. As you can probably imagine, in the current climate, those seem to uh, encourage as much attention, you know, more attention than the others. And I mean, certainly with the critical decision making, um, it's about looking at the science of decision making. It's then about I have sort of three real mind-bending working dilemmas that we pick apart and through picking those dilemmas apart we we can draw out really useful insights and strategies to help us make better decisions uh, more quickly and with less stress that's the focus um so that that keeps me busy and, and then i also do talk about domestic abuse uh, and gender unity as well um so yeah both both things uh, i have sort of two very separate niches as a, as a speaker and a trainer that's really interesting about critical decision um, thinking. Is I, I saw uh, something about climate change. I don't know, it must have been 10, 15 years ago. And it was it was just a simple quadrant, and it was likelihood versus do something. 
So the bottom left quadrant was unlikely do nothing. So we just carry on as we are. Then it was very likely do nothing. And then it was unlikely do nothing, do something and or something like this. So, and basically by just following this, this decision process, the risk of doing nothing and the likelihood of it happening was that if climate change happened, then we'll end up with a, a situation where it's, yeah, it's, it's going to kill us all. If we do something and the climate change is not real, then we've just spent a load of money. Yeah. But if, but if we do something and it is real, then we'll avert a planetary disaster. So basically you've, you've got to do something no matter how unlikely it is. Otherwise you end up on a destination to planetary disaster. Yeah. And I, I, I saw, saw this quadrant and I, and I, I love the way you just, you just produce this truth table and just look at probability versus the impact of, 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 of a probability. And I, I just used to talk about disaster recovery for IT systems in my previous life. And I, I did, I, I applied this critical decision making with, and this sounds very, very silly, but whether to have my beard lasered off. So, and I had this, I, I boiled it down to a binary decision. Would I regret having la- yeah. it lasered versus would I regret not having it lasered? And I decided that if I, if I didn't have it done now and my hair turned gray, it would be a lot more painful and a lot more drawn out to have it lasered off later when I was great. So I thought if I, if I decided that I, sh- I wish I hadn't, then I could actually, I could live with that easier than wishing I had. So it was a, I was able to point it down to that, that, that truth table of, of entity there and, oh, and come up great. with it. But I guess that's what you're trying to talk about is you're trying to boil down the essence of the, of the challenge into the core elements and then making very binary decisions on yes, no sort of situations. Yeah. Yeah, so like the first dilemma is the dilemma we all face between hanging in there uh, or waking up and smelling the coffee um, and looking through techniques to help us when we're stuck in that dilemma of do we keep going with something, could be a business, could be a relationship, or do we pull the plug on it? Um, And what are the things that keep us stuck in that dilemma and and how do we outsmart that dilemma so we can move forward and make decisions? And uh, the thing, yeah, I mean, and the other thing I was going to add really to what you're saying I think sometimes people are afraid of making a bold decision because they think it's risky. But actually, when you when you really kind of pull apart some bold decisions, they're actually the safest decision. But bold doesn't necessarily need to be dangerous. Sometimes the safe decisions are the most dangerous ones. So we, we have to bear that in mind, we, particularly for risk-averse people, that actually these safe decisions that you prefer, in theory, they're safer. But actually, if you really uh, forecast them, they're actually the de- most dangerous decisions you could make. Yeah, I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking sunk cost bias. You know, you've you've got so much investment in this. Yeah, I've spent ten years of my life doing this. I can't stop now. And we do that in business, don't we? We get to the yeah. point in business, I think. I'll just roll the dice one more time. It will come good next month. I'll put another thousand pound into this. Yeah. Uh, so that's the sunk cost bias, the HS2, the channel tunnel, all of those kind of, we keep playing money into it. Yeah. Yeah. Scottish parliament building. Original budget was, uh, I've got to get my facts straight here. I think the original budget was something like 40 million. They then got into the building and went up to 95. Legislators several years later then came and capped it at 200 million. But they're getting more and more. And in the end, it was finished for 400 million. 
So you, you see how it, the sun cost bias, it keeps us stuck in these things. So we look at sun cost bias among, among other biases and, and, and really the, the workshop is about trying to give people some, some a bit like, I mean, I don't use the, the table that you mentioned, although I quite like the sound of it, but giving people some little tools and strategies that they can use. So when they're caught in these difficult decisions, they've got some stuff that they can use, some stuff to help keep them grounded and, and be quite methodical about what they're going to do rather than sort of panicking and having sleepless nights. Are people worried about what people will think of them? Is that, is that part of it as well? Where if, if I, if I bottle it, you know, they may see I'm bottling it or I'm indecisive, or I'm wishy washy or is that part of it? I mean, yeah, you, you I look think, at the government's recent decision. The government, they, they cut the HS2 Eastern section. Uh, everyone's been saying for years that the whole project should have been scrapped years ago. And then they scrap a bit of it. And then they're going, wait, hang on a minute. You, you're being wishy-washy again. Is that, is, that, is that the challenge? People being seen to be weak and a failure? By, by I think that is one of, it's definitely one of the challenges. Definitely one of the challenges. Saving face. Yeah. Well, that's been an absolute pleasure to have a chat with you for the last hour. I know we could carry on for another couple of hours at least. How do people get hold of you? What's the best way for people to contact you? The best way. Um, and uh, you see, my surname is Payne, P-A-I-N. My initial is A. You'd have thought my parents would have thought about that. Um, and so I'm quite easy to find. There aren't many Andrew Paynes with the surname that I have because Payne usually there's an E on the end or it's P-A-Y-N-E. So if you just Andrew Payne, um, my website, www.andrewpain.co.uk. Um, you can um, book a, uh, a chat with me there if, if you want to halfway down the page. That's fine. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. If you punch in Andrew Payne, I think there's a guy that writes about motorbike adventures that he's had. Uh, that's not me, but there aren't many other Andrew Payne. So I'm really quite easy to find because, like I said, it's an unusual name. Um, but no, I'd love to connect anyone listening to this that kind of wants a conversation or wants to comment or some, you know, do connect with me on LinkedIn. It's probably the social media platform I'm most active on. Um, yeah, so my website or, or that. And if you want to look at my TEDx talk, please give it a thumbs up. Um, only if you like it, of course. Um, but if again, if you head to YouTube, punch in Andrew Payne TEDx, uh, it will be the only one that comes up. So, yeah. Fantastic. I'll make sure that all of those are in the show notes and tanked you on the bottom of that. So, yeah, if people are looking, just uh, go down to the bottom and click. So, yeah, brilliant. brilliant. Well, cool. Thank you, Andrew. And a huge thank you to the listeners for tuning in, for listening this far. I hope you've really enjoyed this. I have. Please do subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues. I've got a number of other exciting guests lined up over the next few weeks and months. So I'm sure they'll be inspiring you as well. And of course, if you'd like to be a guest, please let me know. And if you've got any feedback and suggestions, please send them to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. Finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood, and it's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.